Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on South Asian studies. I'm Anubha Anushri, a doctorate from the Department of History, Stanford University, and a lecturer at the college program at Stanford Introductory Studies. I'm delighted to have Professor Taylor Sherman, who would be joining us from Sydney for the podcast today. Professor Sherman is a cultural and political historian of South Asia at the London School of Economics. She has published widely on Indian history. Her two monographs, State Violence and Punishment in India, published in 2009, and Muslim Belonging in Secular India, published in 2015, have made notable contributions to studying the history of violence and secularism in modern India. Today, we will be in conversation with Taylor about her recent work entitled Nehru's India, A History in Seven Myths, which was published by the Princeton University Press in 2022. I very much look forward to discussing the book with you, Taylor. Welcome. Thanks, Anuba, for inviting me. I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, Great. Uh, So to start us off, uh, could you tell us how did you come to research this topic And what are some of the distinctive contributions you hope to make through this work, especially given the fact that Nehru has been the subject of many, many books on the history of independent India? Okay, that's a a fair question. Uh, Let me break it into two. How did I come to this topic? Well, I've been researching the 1940s and 1950s in South Asia for nearly two decades. And I noticed two things over the course of that research. First, There is a gap between what I was discovering about the Nehru years in India and how they have been written about and spoken about in the 21st century. And secondly, that there were other scholars like me, (laughs) that they were um, researching and reassessing citizenship. They were broadening the scope of how we think about Indian foreign policy. They were rethinking development and exploring modernism. And many of these other scholars were avoiding the terms that we so strongly associate with Nehru. So, for example, you might get a book about development with very little mention of socialism. And so I thought, let's let's pull all of this together, bring the insights of the recent scholarship and add my own new research and pull this together to create a new interpretation of, of Nehru's India. So that's the first part of the question. Second part of the question is, what are my aims? Why why another book about Nehru? Um, Well, first of all, I would like to say out loud and proud that this is not a book about Nehru, really. There's nothing in there about his time at Harrow or at Cambridge. I have no new revelations to give you about Edwina Mountbatten. Um, In fact, it's more a book about India and especially about the government programs and ideas in the Nehru years. And one of the main aims is to encourage us, everyone, scholars, thinkers, um, ordinary people, to decenter Nehru in our understanding of the era. Um, so I argue that Nehru declined to define the concepts that we so strongly associate with him. Um, he rejected any little attempt to package his, his ideas into pithy aphorisms. Uh, and so to, to see the era as Nehruvian in an ideological sense is a misunderstanding. And in fact, I argue that Nehru tended to act as patron, sponsoring other people as they pursued their projects to develop and make India into a nation. 
And so one of the aims then is to is to ask everyone to look at the other people around Nehru, the other programs, maybe starting, and I would hope other scholars take up this call uh, to, to move beyond Nehru, or even to start their projects from the regions or even from the margins to understand this era more, more clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for that insightful introduction, Taylor. Um, on on the on a similar note, I was uh, quite intrigued by the title of your book. Um, as you mentioned in your preface, the title uh, "History in Seven Myths" is a reference to the play between a historical fact and the narrative about the fact that takes a life of its own. Um, and one of the most enduring such narratives or myths about uh, Jawaharlal Nehru um, is that he cultivated a strong personality cult around himself. Uh, but you show us that this was not the case. Uh, in fact, your book is, like you said, uh, an invitation to examining the history of early independent India through the various uh, personal, political, and social contestations of the time period and to Nehru personally. Um, could you tell us a little about how the myth around Nehru, uh, the architect of modern India as he was known, came to be, uh, the origin story of the myth? Sure. Um, so I think uh, it's absolutely the case that in the in the book, I argue that Nehru did not cultivate a cult of personality around himself. Uh, he doesn't meet any of the criteria for, for doing that. Uh, instead, what I argue is that the myth of Nehru, the architect, indispensable to the continuation of the nation building project in the 1950s and 60s, that myth was uh, fostered by the Congress party. And it began in 1958 uh, with the request from Nehru to please retire or take a small break, a sabbatical from being prime minister. Um, and this is, he, he addressed the Congress parliamentary party asking permission to retire or have a sabbatical. And they told him, no, <laughs> uh, please. Please, sir, continue, carry on. And they then uh, lauded him in innumerable speeches, uh, telling him how indispensable he was to to the nation. And so he didn't retire, or he, he took a very short break up in the Himalaya, but he did not retire. And then I argue that the myth of Nehru the architect really explodes after, after he passes. So it's then where we see some of the... Um, iconization around Nehru, the constant repetition of loyalty to his ideas, of the use of his image, uh, is explodes. And so the Congress Party then relies on Nehru, the architect of independent India, uh, when they are most unsure of their own leadership after Nehru dies. I think there's also... Uh, an important role being played by opposition parties in the creation of Nehru, the architect. So they they build him up, uh, they put him on a pedestal uh, in order to to you know chuck tomatoes at him and to try to pull him down. Uh, so there are a number of factors that go into the myth, but it is a myth. Right. Yeah, we see so much of that resonance in um, contemporary Indian politics. Um, That is a thoughtful response, Taylor. Thank you. Uh, I would like to segue to another interesting aspect of the book, uh, which is uh, your your interpretation of the early history of independent India. Um, Throughout your work, you seem to be arguing against some of the canonical interpretations of the time period, by showing us the improvisational and experimental character of the projects India undertook under Nehru. Uh, In other words, your work documents the incompleteness of Indian nationhood, its experimental tone and mode of being, 
At the same time, one could argue that it was precisely the aspirational quality of these projects, the high promises of decolonization that anticipated the disappointments in these projects. I was especially curious about the chapters on secularism, socialism, and successful democracy as templates of contradictions that shaped India. Could you tell us in what way each of these projects of secularism, socialism, and democracy revealed the contradictions of India under Nehru? Sure. Um, well, I think you're absolutely right that the national movement made huge promises and that raised hopes very high. And obviously, high hopes can foster deep disappointments. Um, and that's part of what you see in the aftermath of the Nehru years, uh, disappointment with the, the unfulfilled promises of the anti-colonial movement. Well, um, I suppose I have two answers to this question. The first is that um, there are contradictions, yes. There are inconsistencies, yes. But we shouldn't expect coherence or absolute consistency uh, from any government in India, really. It's a very huge and diverse country that requires different policies, even different narratives, different discourses for different uh, problems, different regions, different constituencies in the country. Um, and this is especially so for Nehru, who didn't want to create a coherent ideology uh, that everyone in the country would have to follow. We have to recall that Nehru is governing uh, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s in the aftermath of the worst excesses of um, fascism and Stalinism. And so ideology was absolutely something he wanted to avoid. So any attempt at, and to, at finding consistency is an attempt to seek for seek something that wasn't an objective of the era. Um, the second answer to that is that each of these big ideas, secularism, socialism, democracy, non-alignment, um, and the others, are, they're all myths, but they're all myths in their own way. Um, and so, for example, when it comes to secularism, India's elites had an agreed formula for what secularism required of them when it came to positive aspects of secularism. So they knew that secularism, and they agreed that secularism required the celebration of India's diversity. What did that mean? It meant lauding uh, iconic individuals, whether they were um, members of the cabinet or cricket players or artists. Um, they were held up as exemplars. Look, here's a successful Muslim, here's a successful Sikh, here's a prominent Christian. Therefore, minorities in India more generally were successful. So, and they also sought to protect the major religious sites of, of, these, um, of these minorities. But when it, come, when it came to everyday life, there was no agreed formula for secularism in India, and especially when it came to conflicts. So when there were conflicts over who was to maintain control over a religious site, um, say there's a dispute over whether a mosque ought to have been, was once a temple and ought to be reconverted to a temple. There was no formula for everyday government servants to answer that dispute, to resolve that dispute in a, quote, secular way. And so they all answered it in their own way, which tended to, uh, to uh, which, sorry, they answered it in their own way and that that tended uh, to favor Hindu majoritarian interpretations of, of those sites. The same goes with Dalits, uh, where to, to truly end untouchability would require a huge social 
transformation. And the elites had no answer for how to do that. So um, and secularism is a myth because it only worked in one register. Indian socialism is a myth for a very different reason. I call it Indian socialism because there was, I argue, an agreed set of ideas and practices that constituted Indian socialism. Uh, they had an agreed definition and they pursued a number of programs uh, in uh, in line with that definition. There, it's a very different form of socialism from Soviet socialism. Um, but the way they pursued their programs doesn't fit Soviet socialism and it doesn't fit our 21st century understanding of socialism. And so in the myth of socialism is a myth because it doesn't fit definitions imposed from outside, uh, outside of the Nehruvian and elite context that, in which Indian socialism was, was developed. Uh, and when it comes to democracy, democracy is quite interesting because you can define it narrowly as ele- successful elections, or you can define it more broadly as a democratic culture that includes everyday interactions with uh, people that one disagrees with, uh, the campaigning around the, the elections, uh, everything from free press and um, unions and things like that. So if you take a narrow definition of democracy, then yes, India had a, had a successful democracy. But what I argue is that Indians themselves took a broader definition of democracy in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And by the second election, there's a lot of unease about how democracy was panning out in India. They were very worried about how prominent caste was becoming in election campaigns. They were very concerned about how uh, big business was donating to political parties and potentially gaining influence over government through their donations. And they were worried about how uh, Indian governments would transfer power between different political parties. Indians themselves were concerned about their democracy. And so this, the idea of India as a successful democracy is a myth because it's been, the idea of success has been imposed from the outside. And we haven't seen how worried, how concerned the elites of the late 50s and early 60s were about the health of their democracy. Right. Going back to the fascinating, uh, to, to your fascinating discussion, um, fascinating discussion of uh, minorities uh, in your chapter on hegemonic secularism, I was wondering if you could uh, touch upon the encounter between Ambedkar and Nehru uh, that you bring up um, so evocatively in this chapter. So, um Ambedkar is an interesting character. Of course, he's a he's a huge figure now in our understanding of the 1940s and 1950s. Um, but he and Nehru didn't really get along. And when uh, Ambedkar passed away, uh, Nehru gave a very short piece, very short speech in the Lok Sabha, where he barely managed to praise Ambedkar. And part of his discomfort with Ambedkar was that uh, at the time Ambedkar was arguing that. Dalits had special interests and ought to be ought to organize separately, as in terms of forming a political party, um, and they ought to be treated separately in, in both in terms of reservations and in terms of special programs for their advancement. And this, I argue, violated the norms by which Congress policed Indian secularism. And so it wasn't just celebratory. There were norms by which minorities had to conform to Congress secularism. So they they had to be exemplary 
They had to represent India before they represented their separate minority interests. And they, uh, uh, the 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 um the ideal minority, as it were, was one who always represented India only and never made separate demands for Dalits or Christians or Muslims or Sikhs or anything. And so part of the reason Nehru and Ambedkar had a very tense relationship and that Ambedkar doesn't fit into, didn't fit into Congress socialism is because he didn't conform to this, the demands of Congress socialism. Great. Um, so moving on, I was especially fascinated by the arguments you present to unravel uh, the myth of, uh, quote unquote, the strong state that I highly recommend to our listeners. Uh, the chapter is full of interesting anecdotes on the several uh, state and non-state actors that come to proliferate this time period. Growing up, I was uh, exposed to some of these institutions myself. Um you suggest that the proliferation of these state-run enterprises, what you call as, uh, I quote, assortment of state forms, unquote, actually revealed the impulse to decentralize and heterogenize the state administration. Could you tell us a bit more about this argument in your work? Sure. So this argument about the myth of the strong state in India derives in part from the myth-making of the Raj, uh, and so it suited the British to present the Raj as this overpowering, um, uh, sorry, it suited the British to present the Raj as an incredibly strong state, right? And they did that um, not because not by making the administration incredibly effective, um, but by through rhetorical um flourishes, but also by displays of power in terms of the Darbars and uh, extraordinary displays of violence. So the the Raj projected a a kind of fake image, a mythical image of a strong state. Uh, I liken it to the Wizard of Oz, right? So if you've seen the Wizard of Oz, when they finally get to Oz, um, Dorothy and her, her mates, they pull back a curtain and they find that the Wizard of Oz isn't this great and, and powerful being. He's a small man pulling levers and not really able to achieve very much. And the Raj is certainly that, um, I think, very similar to the Wizard of Oz. And so when the Indians inherit this structure, they inherit something without a whole lot of power. And they know that, they know, they're very aware of the weaknesses of the administration that they inherited, and they're very critical of it. So from 1947, all the way through the Nehru years, there is constant critique of the colonial administration, um, and a constant attempt to one, build a new administrator, or inspire a new administrator, so one who is not, quote, neutral, and therefore um, potentially raising objections to all government policies, but one who is enthusiastic for government policies. This creates a new kind of administrator who is effectively pro-Congress. This creates problems for um, the transfer of power to other political parties, because then they also try to build up administration that is uh, more enthusiastic about their own programs. And we see this as a problem in Kerala after um, the communists win power in 1957. So that's the first part of the argument that uh, Congress and Nehru and the, the leaders are not happy with their inheritance. So they're not happy. So what do they do? Do they just 
anyways use the machine that they've inherited? No. All of the, sem- or rather most of the seminal projects of the age are developed at a distance from the existing administration. And so things like the Planning Commission uh, are not part of the Constitution. They, there's no law that established the Planning Commission. These things are just established by a resolution of the government of India. And that is the case for things like the Central Social Welfare Board, the Faridabad Development Board, and all these things that we associate, um, that that were the pet projects, the the much-loved projects of the Nehru era. What happens then, so the idea behind these um, fairly autonomous bodies is that they won't be hindered by the overly rigid and uh, uncreative functioning of the administration. Okay, so they run throughout the 1950s. Some of them are more successful than others. Uh, But in the late 1950s and early 1960s, these experiments are kind of wound down. And uh, it's in part because um, an American, Paul Appleby, comes along and says, okay, we need to Let's let's streamline um, and standardize some of these administrative forms, and in part because some of them fail or are um, accused of, of corruption or mismanagement. And, but what you end up with is an incredibly diverse state, right? So the the Raj was a not very well functioning state, but it was also very diverse. Let's not forget that there were layers and layers of administration, and uh, you've got to add in the princely states and everything uh, with the Raj and the. By the end of the Nehru years, the Indian state is even more complex because it's it's had these experiments with autonomous bodies that have been brought in, but they've not entirely been absorbed. It's not a kind of Borg-like um, uh, machine that perfectly absorbs them. In fact, so when, when they are brought back into the administration, they create an even more diverse administration by the end of the Nehru years. Mm-hmm. Although arguably some of these bodies, autonomous institutions did continue to have a terribly long life. (laughs) Um, Indeed, indeed. And they keep experimenting with autonomy, right? mm -hmm. So one of the things that happens is that, um, so when they run state-run enterprises, they decide, in line with the Labour Party in Britain's decision, they decide to make these state-run enterprises as autonomous as possible, as much like ordinary businesses as possible. And in the late 1950s, early 1960s, they they review all these state-run enterprises, and some of them are not doing very well, and they identify the problem as them being too closely administered by the state. They're not autonomous enough. (laughs) And so you have this constant flow of... um, decentralization and recentralization. So they try an autonomous body, it, it, it becomes formalized and develops its own administrative machinery, then it's pushed out again, to, given more autonomy, then brought back in. It's a really interesting dynamic that doesn't flow in a single direction. Mm-hmm. Right. And today we have arrived in this very hybrid position where what is state and what is private uh, investment is not clear anymore. Um, it's a it's a state of really um, so, some government infrastructure is, is really unclear uh, where the investment is really coming from, um, which raises interesting questions about um, administration um, in 21st century India. Um, and responsibility any- as well, doesn't it? <laughs> who's responsible? 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, my next question is uh, connected with the uh, challenges of writing or researching a work like this. Um, as a historian uh, working on archives in India, I am aware of the travels of working in the state or central archives myself. Um there are many success stories, but these are few and far between and do little to undermine the general state of disrepair of Indian archives that you bring out in such um, excruciating, shall I say, <laughs> details uh, in the preface of your work. Um, so I was quite intrigued by uh, the method you employed in this work. I thought your um, this method was uh, speaking to the kind of archives historians have access to, in, in what historians of modern India have access to. Um, and as, a, as opposed to presenting a, as a continuous history, you present um, somewhat of an episodic account of India that provides us the opportunity to think with different threads of Indian history. Um, Could you talk to us a a little bit about some of the pitfalls and strengths of this approach to studying the history of India? Sure. I mean, I think you're absolutely right about um, the challenges, shall we say, uh, of working on history after 1947 in South Asia. I think for, scho- for scholars who work on, um, on other parts of the world where the archival record is really complete, it's hard to fathom just how incomplete the records are um, in, in India. So uh, after 1947, only some files were transferred. They were transferred somewhat erratically and sporadically. Um, and so what you have are bits and pieces of the official record. So you c- literally cannot find a run of files from the Ministry of External Affairs or the the Home Ministry that just tell you every program that happened, everything that happened, uh, whereas you can find that in other countries. And so you end up, um, so so many people end up working on colonial history, right? So uh, their PhD supervisors um, or their mentors simply say, oh, I, it's just not possible to work on post-colonial Indian history. And so history the discipline ends in 1947. Well, I would strongly discourage people from listening to that advice, right? Uh, there are materials out there. One, um, at the National Archives, they, they have, they're digitizing things uh, and they are releasing things. What they release is sometimes feels very, very random, um, but that doesn't mean there aren't gems in there. And what you can get in the official archive can then be built upon in unofficial archives or non-official archives. And the the beauty of the 21st century is that we're now, uh, via the internet, able to, one, digitize those other archives, but also become aware of them so that there are uh, archives of companies of uh, and non-governmental organizations, of individuals. Places like the London School of Economics has a really excellent collection of official uh, reports uh, and things like Lok Sabha debates or assembly debates from, from different states. Um, and they're, they're out there. And you have to piece them together. You have to be, you can't be the kind of person who likes to stand in an archive, uh, take photos, for 12 days straight and then run home and read your photos. You have to be very uh, persistent uh, uh, and you have to be a real um, detective to find these sources, but they are there. Uh, And they tell us, I think, stories that are more interesting than the stories that we can tell if we only have 
for example, the selected works of Jawaharlal Nehru. Uh, and for, for years and years, historians have just returned to the selected works to tell the story of India. And that just makes for a very boring story. Like any story with a single protagonist is, is not as exciting as, as one with multiple casts of characters. So I would encourage scholars to um, ignore people who tell them they can't go past 1947 <laughs> uh, and, and to be persistent. So when they walk up to a newspaper uh, or a non-official organization or business and they ask, do you have any old file, old papers? And the first person that they encounter says no, ask someone else and you might get a different answer. The, the records are out there and so the history is out there to be written. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for that very encouraging response, Taylor. Um, in the spirit of continu- encouraging more people to undertake the fascinating study of South Asia, could you share with us one fun fact or surprising thing you discovered during your research? Sure. I mean, one of the fun things for me was that this project took me away from the center of Uh, of the political issues that I'd been looking at for 20 years. So um, state programs and violence and secularism and um, development, things like that. So um, what I would like to share with you is a story about the first national exhibition of art, which was hosted in 1955. So in the final chapter, I look at modernism and forms of, of modernism Uh, and modernists in India. And this national exhibition of art was um, undertaken under the aegis of the Lalit Kala Academy. Uh, And that was uh, interestingly founded by uh, Molana Azad in 1954, again, as a semi-autonomous body. So the idea is not to create some kind of Soviet-style state-directed art. Instead, it's semi-autonomous, and the idea is just to sponsor art, everything from classical art to to contemporary art in India. So in this spirit, they set up um, a prize uh, and and a national exhibition of art, and that exhibition had over a 1,000 entries entries uh, from 300 artists, more than 300 artists, and a selection of them were chosen um, for this exhibition, which took place in the National Gallery of Modern Art in Jaipur House uh, in 1955, and it was a massive failure. (laughs) No one liked the exhibition, in part because the selection of entries was too diverse. It It literally encompassed everything that was being made in India, in every corner of India um, at the time. And so uh, the Times of India uh, called it, called the selection erratic and, quote, depressingly amorphous. Um, And the Times of India's critic, a man called A.S. Raman, despaired that, quote, many paintings and drawings which would not have found a place in a school exhibition received the approval of the judges. And so everyone hates this exhibition. There is no national style, they complain. What is Indian art? They end up asking uh, sort of existentially. And in turn, the judges then turn around and blame the artists. And they say um, that the foremost exhibition in the country deserves a better response from artists say the judges, and they actually refuse to award the first prize to anybody. The second prize then goes to um, M.F. Hussein for his for his murals, I mean. And I think this is one, it's fun to see something fail. We all like a good failure, and especially when it's something as light as, as art and not something as profound as um, 
the requirement to live in peace with one another. But I think it also is a story about the the um, experimental nature of India in this period and the unwillingness of the government to impose a single vision um, uh, upon the country or to require a single kind of performance, even from its artists. So I think it's a nice little anecdote about the period. I mean, to to give uh, M.F. Hussain a second prize, <laughs> that is quite, um, yeah, that's... Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so this, this is a really nuanced and fantastic conversation, Taylor. Thank you. Uh, and before we let you go, could you tell us what does your future project look like? Sure. So I'm, I still have some material on the 1950s and 60s that I'm working on, including on radio programming for development bet- um, and the exchange of ideas between India and West Africa on that on that subject. Um, but my next big project is about environmental regeneration uh, in a in a brief kind of elevator pitch uh style summary, I can tell you that my hunch is that projects of regeneration are actually generative uh, and they they produce new excuse me, new imaginations of the past, new forms of political economy, new ways of extraction. And I'm interested in how um, the imagination of uh, rewilding and the, the res- restoration of nature actually produces something new. So that's my new project. It runs everywhere from the 1950s to the present. It's it's massive. Great. I very much look forward to reading your work when it's out. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the current book, Taylor. I especially appreciate your flexibility in accommodating the great time difference. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure engaging with you today. Thanks, Anubai. I've enjoyed this conversation.